Quick question, uh, have you ever gone on vacation hoping to get some rest, hoping to get recharged, only to come back from vacation to be more tired than when you left? Anybody ever gone on vacation more tired than when you left? How many of y'all have ever had like a bad flight experience to the point maybe you had to like stay the night in the airport, like trying to sleep on a really uncomfortable chair? Anybody? So we were in Chicago a few weeks ago for vacation. Uh, we were coming back on a Friday night. We were supposed to land around 11 o'clock, so already it was a late flight. But if you remember three weeks ago, before all the heat and stuff we've had the last couple weeks and humidity, it was raining perpetually. It never seemed to stop raining. You remember those weeks here? And so as we were coming into Houston Hobby, uh, the pilot said, hey, there's storms ahead. We're going to try to land. And we had the usual thing. You're coming down. They tell you to buckle up. And the plane, the nose goes up. And all of a sudden, the plane took off again. And we're like, what's going on? And a few minutes later, the pastor, uh, not the pastor, the pilot comes on. <laughs> and he says, and he says, hey, folks, uh, we have had some uh, wind shear and some storms. And we can see the lightning out the windows. So we were not able to land at Hobby, and we actually don't have enough fuel in our plane to keep circling around the airport, so we're going to actually land at Bush Airport, refuel, and then we're going to try to land again at, at Hobby Airport. So we're like, okay. So I look at my watch, and already it's like almost 11.30, almost midnight, and so we land at Bush Airport, only to find this. They said, hey, uh, folks, uh, the gate's closed. A lot of the Southwest employees have gone home for the night, so we're waiting on some other employees to come and open the gate up for us. So finally, we are able to get to the gate, and by now, it's about 1 o'clock, 1.30. We get to baggage claim, and they tell us, hey, our baggage folks have gone home for the day as well, so we're trying to find some baggage people to unload your baggage. Finally, at about 2.30 in the morning, we have our bags, and they say, hey, you know what? We're not going to fly back into uh, Hobby Airport because the pilots have worked too many hours. And so we're going to drop you off here. You can Uber. You can Lyft. Get a bus back to Hobby. And on Monday morning, you'll get an email from Southwest Airlines showing you how you can get reimbursed for that. So we got a Lyft or Uber. I can't remember which one. And so we're driving from Bush Airport on the north side to Hobby Airport on the south side at 2.30 in the morning. It's also raining. And as I'm sitting in the front seat and we're all packed in, my wife and our daughters and all of our luggage, I look over, and you have probably seen this before in maybe a friend's car, the check engine light is glowing red. And I'm sitting there thinking, all right, we're supposed to land at 11. It's already 2.30 in the morning. We're going all the way to the south side, and it's raining outside, and this guy's check engine light is on, and I'm already thinking about like being outside in the pouring rain, looking under the hood with an Uber driver trying to figure out what's wrong with his car. Now, here's the thing. A check engine light simply says, hey, there's some problems that are going to happen in your car if you keep going in this direction. If you keep driving on this car, keep putting miles on your car, eventually you're going to have some problems. It's a warning light. Uh, eventually, just to finish the story, we did get back to Hobby Airport at 3.30 in the morning, and we got home at 4 a.m., so I was more tired from our vacation than when we left. That's the point of the story. But a check engine light is simply a warning to say, if you keep going in this direction, you keep putting miles on your car, you're headed for trouble. If you ignore this, you're headed for trouble. But here's a question I have. In this journey of life, in the walk of a Christian, what do you do 
When God gives you a check engine light in your life, what do you do in your life when a check engine light goes off in your life? Now, you can, like in a car, try to get some masking tape and cover it and ignore it. But what do you do when you have a check engine light? A check engine light in your life like a gnawing feeling on the inside. You may have a great career, a great family, a nice house, a lot of money, everything of your dreams, and yet you have this gnawing feeling on the inside. Or perhaps you are often binge-watching or trying to numb yourself because you have some gnawing or some emptiness on the inside. It could even be troubles in your marriage or parenting, troubles in relationship, a burden of conviction or guilt. You hear a message, you read your Bible, and you just feel so convicted. What's going on with the lights now? Is, it, is my preaching that bad that you have to adjust the mood lighting now? Um, and to the point when you're listening to the message and you feel convicted, you're justifying. Yeah, that may be true, and yeah, maybe God wants me to do that, but at least I've never killed anybody. And yeah, maybe I'm not giving a whole lot of money, but at least I know I'm giving more than this person. So you try to justify things. Or here's the other thing that God has given us as a check engine light in our lives. And it's simply this. Pain. Pain. Physical pain. Emotional pain. Relational pain. Pain in your life can be a check engine light that God is sending as a warning saying, you can't keep doing this. You can't keep going in this direction. Pain in your marriage, pain in your parenting, discomfort, a check engine light. So here's the question. What do you do when you experience that check engine light in your life? And perhaps you're there this morning. You may be all dressed up and all smiles, but on the inside, that check engine light is just beaming, saying, hey, don't ignore this. Warning, warning, warning. And today, as we start this series called Kings and Prophets, we're going to look at what to do when the check engine light comes on in your life. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel 8, 1 Samuel 8, 1 Samuel chapter 8. What do you do when the check engine light comes on in your life? 1 Samuel chapter 8. Let me give you the context, actually, this whole series. For the next couple of weeks, we're going to be doing a series called Kings and Prophets. We're going to look at an Old Testament king and his accompanying prophet. And so we're going to see what the prophet told the king and the king's response, and hopefully it will speak to us. Uh, it's a way for us to kind of go through the Old Testament narrative in a very kind of different way. Uh, and this first message, we're going to look at Samuel. And this is a transition from being in the judges, now for him being a prophet. At this point, we have seen recently victory over the Philistines to the point where the Israelites, they take a stone and they give it this name Ebenezer, the stone of remembrance. The Lord is our help. And they also have the Ark of the Covenant back. So the Ark of the Covenant was that artifact that represented the presence of God. So the people of God, the Israelites, are in this transition from judges now into kings. And they have both the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, and God has been fighting for them and giving them victory. They now have this thing called the Ebenezer, the Stone of Remembrance. So remember that God has helped them. And this is what happens in... Chapter 8, verse 1. Now it came about when Samuel was old. Hold your finger there. That term old is relative, right? What's old to some may be young to others. How old is old? In the passage here, Samuel's probably between 65 and 70 years old. That he appointed his sons as judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was 
Joel or Joel, the Lord is God. And the name of his second is Abijah, the Lord is my father. They're judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain, and they took bribes and perverted justice. And so here was Samuel, this almost model judge and prophet, and yet his sons would take over as he would soon be home with the Lord, were two wicked sons. And you notice that they did not walk in his ways, verse 3. So spiritually, their hearts weren't right. And because of that, socially, they weren't right. They took bribes. They were dishonest. They perverted justice. And so here's the thing that's been debated over the last probably two or three years now is, can you disconnect your spiritual life from your social life? And I would say you can't because, again, we see their hearts Joel and Abijah, that their hearts were not right with the Lord. Spiritually, they weren't right. And because of that, the outcome was socially, they were dishonest and they took bribes and perverted justice. And so because of this, look at verse four. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They came because they've enjoyed having Samuel as a judge. And now they look at his wicked sons and they say, we don't want them. So they gathered together, these elders, these leaders, and they said, verse five, to him, behold, you have grown old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint us a king to judge us like all the nations. You can literally put, give us a king. The, the, the Hebrew there is a command. It's an imperative. They're not asking nicely. They're saying, we don't want your sons, so now give us a king. And he gives them the why, or he gives Samuel the why, to judge us like all the nations. So they say, all the other nations around us, these even wicked nations, they have kings that rule, that fight battles, that lead them. We want that. That's what we want. Even though God has given them victory over the Philistines, remember the Ebenezer saying, God is our help. Even though the Ark of the Covenant's with them, the presence of God is with them, they say, that's all fine and dandy. What we want is what everyone else has. We want a king. Verse six, look, look at the response. But the matter was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people. Underline that word voice if you have that translation. Listen to the voice of the people. This is a repeated theme, voice, voice, voice. Regarding all that they say to you because they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day I brought them up from Egypt to this day, and that they have abandoned me and served other gods so that they are doing to you as well. Now then, listen to their, there's that word again, voice. However, you shall warn them strongly and tell them of the practice of the king who will reign over them. So here's what God is tripping over. God is not tripping over what they asked for a king because in his plan, Jesus is gonna come. He was gonna be the king to come. So in Deuteronomy chapter 17, he says, you're going to have a king. So he wasn't upset at what they asked for. He was really tripping over why they asked for it. We want to be like everybody else. When they asked for it, we want it right now. And how they asked for it, they, they demanded it. And that's what Samuel and also God are saying, hey, this is what's wrong. And so here's point number one. Here's point number one. Prophets warn us when we stray from God and his will. He says at the very end in verse 9, you shall warn them strongly. So whenever we, Old Testament believers, New Testament believers of church, whenever we drift from God, his way and his will, prophets come to warn us saying, I know you've asked for that. I know you desire that in your heart, but let me give you a warning. And this is why God gives us a warning. Because God is a good, good father. Amen? 
He's a good, good father. And just like any of us, I've seen many of the fathers do it here. As you're dis- we're being dismissed and the kids are running around the parking lot, the fathers say, hey, hey, don't run around the parking lot. They warn their kids, I don't want you to get hit by a car. It's a warning. They don't say that as a cosmic killjoy. They say it because they love their children and want the best for them. And God, in the same vein, he loves us. He's a good, good father. And so when we ask for stuff and demand stuff, God says, hey, let me warn you through a prophet. And here's the thing, again, why they asked for it, how they asked for it, and when they asked for it. The why was, we want to be like everybody else. And in Deuteronomy 14, 2, and for those New Testament scholars, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, this is what God says to us. Deuteronomy 14, 2, and 1 Peter 2, 9. God says to the Old Testament people, to the Israelites, you are to be holy, distinct, set apart, different than your neighbors. He says in 1 Peter 2, 9, the exact same thing. You are a holy people. The word there translated, I think in the King James and some other translations is peculiar. You should be different. You should be set apart. And so you shouldn't want to be like everybody else because you follow the God of Israel, because you serve Jesus, because you have a radical focus on Jesus. He's the most important relationship in your life. When you go to work tomorrow, how are you different than your coworkers who do not know Jesus Christ. If you laugh at the same jokes, tell the same jokes, and have the same work ethic, there may be something wrong with that. He says, you and I should be distinct. The dreams and desires we have should be different than the people around us. We should be a peculiar people. So my question is this, what is peculiar about you? Other than an hour, an hour and a half you spend on Sunday mornings here at Bay City Fellowship, other than an hour or two that you go to community group during the week, What is unique or different about you? And the reason why you're unique and different is because you are a special people. Uh, I don't know if you have this. Uh, My wife and I have started doing this. When we got married, uh, we received china. Anybody else get china on their their wedding day, some special china? Or maybe it's been passed down. This is a china your grandmother had. Now your mom has, and you pass it down. And Lord willing, we've got china that we're going to pass down to our girls. Is the china has a special cabinet We have like ordinary plates. Our ordinary plates, if you come to our house for lunch or dinner, we're going to serve you. There's the ordinary plates that are chipped and cracked, that are stained, that have been used over and over again. But in this special cabinet, we have the set-apart china that's distinct and different. Yes, there are plates. Yes, there's bowls. Yes, there's cups. But they're distinct. And he says, that's what we are. We, as the people of God, should be distinct. We should be separate from a comma. We should have a different work ethic. We should have a different dream and desire because Jesus is our radical focus. And so what we ask for, why we ask for, how we ask for should all be different. So the title of the sermon is actually called Be Careful What You Ask For. So again, the role of the prophet is to warn us because God loves us. Whenever we stray from God and his ways, the prophet is there to warn us. Uh, I have not preached here in, uh, I think, six weeks now. So thank you for the break. Uh, During that time, I was able to go to two churches, and I was in Omaha, Nebraska, preaching at a church up there. Crazy story, real quick. Uh, So during the whole COVID thing and the shutdown, there's a couple that was here in Houston for treatment for cancer for MD Anderson. They started attending Bike City Fellowship. Everything went online. They continued to watch online, heard I was going to be in Omaha. They actually showed up to the church, and they said, you're kind of our online pastor still. And so they said they've enjoyed So hello, everyone in Omaha, if you're watching. Um, 
After I, went, uh, uh, after I preached at their 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock, a church that reminded me a lot of Bite City Fellowship, they had a fishing guide who was a member of the church. And so they said, hey, we're going to take you fishing. I found out that you enjoy fishing as a hobby, so we're going to take you fishing. So we got in his fishing truck. He actually had a truck dedicated to fishing alone. Had all of his gear in the back, all of his gear on the roof. We went fishing. And as we were going on this two-lane highway out in the country, I noticed something. I looked to the rearview mirror, to the mirror on the side here, and as cars passed us, as cars were next to us, this little warning indicator light came on. I don't know if you have that on your car. I don't have it on my car, so it was a novelty to me. I looked, and it was basically a blind spot monitoring saying, you know what? Warning, don't make a turn to the right because you have a car in your blind spot. And that's the role of the prophet. A a prophet says, you know what? You and I have blind spots. We've got to be careful. And God says, you know what? I'm warning you strongly based on the direction of your life or what you're asking for. Now, how does the prophet warn? How does the prophet warn? Look at verse 10. So again, point number one is this. Prophets warn us when we stray from God and his will. It's a check engine light that God gives us. So how are you dealing with the check engine lights in your life? And how does the prophet warn us? Verse 10, so Samuel spoke all the words of of the Lord to the people who had asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the practice of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and put them in chariots for himself among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. For the sake of time, I'll give you the three things he warns them about. He says, first off, if you have a king, the king that you're asking for, he will take your sons and daughters. He will conscript them. He will draft them. He will draft your sons into his army. He says, and your daughters, they will make perfume and cook and bake for the king and for his army. So your children will be conscripted, drafted into his army. They will drafted, be drafted into serving the king and all his nobles. That's what's going to happen. So it's going to affect your family. On top of that, he says, eminent domain is coming. He says, the king will say, oh, that's a nice piece of land. Oh, I could use that house. Oh, I could use that land. And he will take your land. He will take your homes and give them to his nobles and his servants. So on top of that, he said he will tax you. He'll take your grain and your flocks and take a tenth. Not for you and your benefit, but for him and his benefit. So he says, number one, it's going to affect your family. Your family is going to be conscripted. Your kids into his army, into serving him. Number two, it's going to affect your fortune. He's going to take your land and your property, your houses and your cattle and your sheep and your grain. It's going to affect your fortune. And that's not even the worst part. Look at verse 18. After all this happens, then you will cry out on that day because there are a king whom you have chosen for yourselves. Notice the pronoun. Your king, you have chosen for yourselves. This is the bed that you have made. You'll cry out to God, but look at the verse at the end of their verse there. But the Lord will not answer you on that day. Now, if you think it's bad enough for your children to be conscripted, to be drafted to serving, that affects your future and your family. If you think high taxes and the eminent domain, taking your property is not bad enough. He says, when it gets so bad that you finally cry out, the Lord said, all right, God, my bad, we made a mistake. God will not hear you on that day. That's the scariest part. I don't know about you all, but that's the scariest part to me. Because let me just mention this. We cannot equate the removal of the guilt of sin with the removal of the consequences of sin. 
we automatically think if God removes the guilt to sin, God, would you forgive me? And God says, I forgive you. That now all the consequences of that sin are removed as well. Maybe that there's a particular sin that has legal ramifications. You think if I confess the sin and ask God to forgive me, now I won't go to court. I won't go to trial. Or if you think, you know what, God, forgive me for not doing this. Now my marriage is going to be fixed instantly. And he says, in that sense of God, would you remove the consequences of our decision? God says, who are you? Excuse me? You wanted this. That's your king that you asked for. And I forgive you because I love you. I'm willing to take you back. But you just can't snap your fingers and have things go back to normal. So here's point number two. Prophets warn us with the future consequences of straying from God and his will. They warn us saying, if you keep going on this direction, check engine light, check engine light. Here are the future consequences. Here are, here's what's going to happen. It will affect your future, your family, your fortune, and ultimately, to alliterate even more perfectly, your faith. You'll cry out to God, God, save my marriage. God, save my business. Save my family. And God said, I, I-, I warned you. I gave you a check engine light. You may have put a little piece of tape over it and ignored it. And I'm willing to forgive you. And I'm willing to work for you and be merciful and gracious because I'm God. But don't say you weren't warned. And that's what the prophet does. Back when I was a bivocational church planter, I had many clients uh, as a personal trainer. I worked in a gym similar to the Houstonian here in Houston, a high-end gym. Many of my clients were very wealthy businessmen and businesswomen. And I, I can tell you the number of times where a person would come to me, a client would come to me, uh, usually middle age, and they said, I just got back from the doctor. And the doctor said, you know what? From the moment you graduated college to your age now, you have just been grinding and working hard. You've made your millions. You've made your wealth. You've made a name for yourself. You've got the corner office. You're now established. You're in every trade journal, trade magazine. You're the man. But your health is terrible. You have neglected your physical health. You've not gotten enough food. You eat on the road all the time. You are morbidly obese. You have high blood pressure. You have heart disease. And this doctor has warned them saying, even though you've made all this money, you will not live long enough to enjoy any of it. So you have a choice. You can stop. You can change your lifestyle. Eat healthier. Get sleep. Manage your stress. Start working out. And that's why they would come to me. They say, I don't know how to work out. Tell me how I can work out. Tell me how I can lose weight and trim up. And that's why they would come to me. And so they would hear the warning and they would heed the warning. I want to give us as a church uh, four warnings here. Four warnings. The first one is this. In verse 19, there's a word voice again. And then in verse 22, there's a word voice. And I asked you to underline the word voice it's a repeated theme throughout 1 Samuel. It can be translated voice. It can be trans- and the word is kol, Q-O-L, kol. Uh, it can be translated voice. It can be translated thunder. It can be translated bleeding or sounds. Here's the first warning to all of us in here. And this is something we battle every day. Is are you going to listen to the voice of God? Or are you going to listen to the voice of this world? Are you going to listen to the voice of God? Because the contrast here is the voice of the culture. They're saying, we want a king like everybody else. 
That's the loudest voice in the room. And they ignore Samuel's voice, representing the voice of God. And so every day, you and I have a choice, moment by moment, are we going to listen to what God says about this? We're going to listen to what the world says about this. John 17, Jesus says it this way. He says it this way in John 17, the, what I would call the true Lord's Prayer. He says it this way. He says, uh, the disciples and everyone who believe uh, in me through them, so all of us in here who name the name of Jesus, he says, I put them in the world. They're in this world, this godless, dark world. They're in this world. But I've also given them your word. I've given them revelation. And then he says this, Jesus says this, Make them more like me, mature them, grow them up in me by your word. So here's the tension that we face every day is are we going to be faithful to the word of God or faithful to the world? And my friends, I'm sad to report every study that's been done says that believers, people who name the name of Jesus are becoming more and more worldly every day. And there are consequences to that when we become indistinguishable from the world. Have you ever been to a friend's house uh, that, that they have a really green lawn, a really green lawn, the lawn is really green, but on further inspection, you look and you realize it's both like St. Augustine grass or Bermuda grass and like weeds. It's just been all mowed level, so it all looks the same. He says, that's what's going to happen. You, we will not be able to distinguish between the wheats and the tares, the weeds and the grass. We will no longer be, as Jesus says, salt and light, to bring light to a dark world and to bring taste to a tasteless world, to preserve a decaying and dead world. He says, we stop being salty and we stop being light. So that's the first warning from this passage. He says, we have stopped listening to the voice of God and we listen to the voice of the world. The second thing is this. And the pastor, John 17, 13 through 19, for those of you who are uh, taking notes, John 17, 13 through 19, Jesus says, you can be faithful to the world or you can be faithful to the word. You got a choice every moment, every day. Faithful to the word on parenting, faithful to the word on marriage, faithful to the word on serving the body of Christ, or you can be faithful the world's way. The second thing is this, consumer versus consume Christianity. Consumer versus consume Christianity. Paul says in Philippians 2.17 that he's being poured out like a drink offering. His last letter, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, he says, I have been poured out like a drink offering. Basically what he's saying is, I have given my life to serving the Lord Jesus Christ. I have a radical focus on Jesus, not just raising my hands on Sunday and worshiping him. I've given everything I have. <clears throat> I've been consumed by God. But rather than being consumed by God because he's been so good to us, he's given us everything that we have. For so many, we have exercised consumer Christianity. What does God offer me? What does the church offer me? What can this church do to benefit me, to help me? How can this church entertain me? Rather than saying, how can I benefit this church? I'm a part of this family. Yes, I'm going to receive, but how can I serve and benefit this church? How can God use me to do his kingdom work outside these walls? How can God use me? How can I be poured out? And as long as we have a consumer mentality, the church will always be internally focused. And what's going to happen is rather than seeing other churches in greater Houston as our brothers and sisters in Christ, as family of God, we're going to see them as competition. 
And I don't know about you, but I don't want that. I want to work with other churches because in order to reach the 7 million people in greater Houston, we cannot do it alone. We've got to work with other churches. But what happens is this. We want to have the most amazing band and the most amazing preaching. You're not getting that, but the most amazing kids ministry so that we can do better than others and attract people that come and say, oh, this is something for me. Rather than saying, yes, I'm going to receive. Yes, I'm in the family, but now how can I give? First Corinthians 12, Paul says that each of us in here are part of the body of Christ. And if you know the body, the human body, my eyes right now are receiving blood. They're receiving nerve impulses. So they're receiving something, but how are they serving the body? Now the eyes are looking. The feet are moving. So every part of the human body receives something, but also gives something as well. And it's a terrible tragedy when the body of Christ is comprised of people only who say, feed me, serve me, enervate me, excite me, rather than saying, now how can I serve the body of Christ? Did you know this? That in the human body, there's only one part of the human body that receives and does nothing in return. It's your hair. Because your hair receives blood and nutrients and all that and really has no purpose other than sit there and look good. And it's sad in the body of Christ when there's believers who receive and take and get and just sit there and look good. That's why I shaved my head, because I'm representative. We should all be serving and giving if we've been fed and growing. And the last one is this, and this is a word to the fathers. Authority versus control. Authority versus control. For so many of us who live very good lives, we want to control our kids. We want to control the school they go to, the college they go to, control everything. And here's a news flash. So much of your life that you think is in your control is really out of your control. So there's a difference between authority and control. And in Ephesians chapter 1, it says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's seated in a position of authority far above all rulers and realms, far above your boss and my boss. He's sitting there far above any earthly and heavenly rule, above any devil and any demon. That's where Jesus is. And then Ephesians 2 says that we are now seated with Christ in, uh, at the right hand of the Father. We're now seated in a position of authority. So get this, so much of what you try to control is out of your control. But now in Jesus Christ, you and I have authority. We are now seated at the right hand of God, a sovereign God who controls everything. And now we can ask with authority as we tie it to his kingdom purposes. So you may not be able to control who your son or daughter marries. You may not be able to control what they study in college or the job they take. You may not be able to control the response of your neighbors who don't know Jesus Christ, who play their music until three in the morning. You may not be able to control all that. But God says, you know what you have? You have something better. You have authority. And I don't know about you all, but that should drive us to our knees. And I'll just say this. The future of Bayou Seed Fellowship is tied up in three things. It's tied in, number one, our focus on the Great Commission, if we're making disciples. It's tied into the prayer life of this church, and it's tied into how we develop future leaders. And so I would beg you and ask you, we're trying to raise the temperature of prayer here at Bay City Fellowship because we want you all to walk in authority. To say, God, I'm giving you my kids. I'm asking you for this. You have all authority. You are 
You are the true superintendent over Spring Branch ISD. You are the true superintendent over HISD. You're the true CEO over my job and business. And so I'm going to ask you. So we have to differentiate between authority and control. Here's the verses for you keeping track. Ephesians 1, 20 through 30, uh, 21. Ephesians 1, 20 through 21. And then Ephesians 2, 6. Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. Now we're at the right hand of the Father, far above all rule. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, I have all authority. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. We are now seated with Christ. And again, this all authority that we have is not name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, saying, you know what? I'm claiming and naming a new Ferrari or claiming a new house. It's not that. It's saying, God, you have a kingdom purpose. You want to see every man, woman, boy, and girl come to faith in Jesus Christ, and I want to be used for that. And in that, I have authority. And it's all tied to this last warning a failure to make disciples. When the Great Commission is not the mission, when people gather on Sunday mornings and we're not equipping you and challenging you to both be a disciple, to submit every area of your life to Jesus Christ. So a radical focus on Jesus isn't just a time of worship and a time of how we do church. A radical focus on Jesus says, I'm going to radically focus on submitting every area of my life to you, to obeying you, to loving you and pursuing you as the Lord, the lover of my life. So we have to be a disciple and we make disciples. We help people on their spiritual journey. And that verse is simple. Matthew 28, 18 to 20 or Acts 1, 8, that all the gospels have it. It's repeated over and over again. Our mission as a church is to help people grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ, to come alongside, to partner with the Holy Spirit. And if we do not do that, and the church simply becomes a place we gather and sing and then go home. This is what's going to happen. We only have to take a trip to Europe. Go to Europe today on a Sunday morning. What was once the bastion? Go to North Africa, Saharan Africa, which was once the bastion, the headquarters of theological thinking, of the great missions sending out. And because of a lack of focus on the Great Commission, Churches are dying and dead in Europe now. Cathedrals, beautiful cathedrals, beautiful church buildings are empty. And you say, well, Icky, that's across the Atlantic. I was visiting my brother. He lives in Portland, Maine, in the New England states. The New England states, once the home of likes of Jonathan Edwards and others, Princeton and Harvard were started as Christian schools. As they departed from making disciples, submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in every area of life, I went for a run in Portland, Maine, and I saw dozens and dozens of church buildings for sale. Lutheran churches, Baptist churches, Methodist churches for sale in America. And you know the statistic, the number of people who profess Jesus Christ in America, boomers, this percent. Gen X, even lower. Millennials, even lower. Gen Z, even lower. The number of people professing faith in Jesus Christ drops every generation. And there's only one solution, and it's Jesus' solution, to make disciples, to make disciples. And that will include planting churches. That will include sending missionaries. That will include all those things. But there's only one solution he's given us. It's not political. It's not educational. It's simply making disciples. And he's calling all of us who name the name of Jesus to do that. And the warning is this, look at Europe. The warning is this, look at the New England states. Can you imagine one day driving by Bayou City Fellowship of Spring Branch with your grandkids or great-grandkids? And they say, oh, look, Grandpa, look, great-grandpa, look, it's an Amazon warehouse. 
And you say, yeah, that used to be Bayou City Fellowship at Spring Branch. I remember we used to worship there. We used to gather for worship there. There's a really amazing, gift, good-looking preacher that used to be there. But because we failed to make disciples, it's a warehouse now. And again, that warning, he says, verse 18, but the Lord will not answer you on that day. What a scary place to be. Verse 19, last point. Those are the four warnings. Consumer versus consumed. Faithful to the word or faithful to the world. Authority versus control. And again, as a disciple, you've got all authority. You can experience that authority. Walk in that authority. Is a lack of making disciples. Verse 19, yet the people refuse to listen to the voice of Samuel. There's that word voice again. Underline that. They refuse to listen to the voice of Samuel. And Samuel speaking on the voice of, uh, behalf of God. So this is the voice of God. They refuse to listen to the voice of God. Check engine light, check engine light. They put a piece of tape over it and kept going. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us so that we also may be like all the nations and our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. That's what God should have been doing for them. Verse 21, now after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint a king for them. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to a city. Here's point number three. There's only two responses to God's warning is rebel or repent. That's all there is. When the check engine light comes on in your life, and maybe it's come on for you today, as my question is, if we're supposed to be making disciples of Jesus, who are you discipling actively right now? Who is somebody that you're helping in their journey of becoming more like Christ? There's only two responses, y'all. Repentance or rebellion. And indifference and apathy is rebellion. Are both rebellion. If you say, ah, this is a good message. Ah, I was just here to, for a kid's dedication, the baby day. Ah, I was just here for the good music. That's all I was here for. Indifference and apathy are continual rebellion. And that's the response. When the check engine light comes on, you have to say, let me look under the hood of my life. Let me see what's broken. What do I need to repent and change? The word repentance means a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. Those are your only two responses. So indifference and complacency are rebellion. Ignoring the check engine light has consequences. Before we take communion, let me just wrap up with this. In February of this year, was there anyone in here that went without power for more than three days? Went without power for more than three days. Anybody here went without power for more than four days? Four days. More but without power than five days. Let's see how many. All right, six days. Six days. Anyone more than six days? We've got one over here. Anyone more than a week? More than seven days without power? February 1st through 5th of 2011, 10 years ago, there was an ice storm that hit South Texas, hit Corpus Christi, 3.2 million people without power. So two agencies, let me get the names of this, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission and the North American Electric Reliability Corporation produced a report that summer saying what happened in South Texas when the power went out, when the freeze hit and the generators failed and all that, they said, unless some major changes are made to our infrastructure, to the electric grid, to the power generators, to providing warmers and all that stuff, unless something happens, this is 10 years ago, y'all, August of 2011, 
If we get hit with another ice storm or snowstorm, it can be catastrophic. Lives will be lost. Millions will be without power unless something is done. So these two groups issued a warning. What happened to the warning? Nothing. Who paid? We did. Because a check engine light was given, a warning was given, and yet the people did nothing. Who suffered? We did. You all, if you've got a check engine light that's on right now in your life, check engine light in your marriage, check engine light in your parenting, when you show up to work tomorrow and you have a check engine light, you shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't have lied about this expense report. You shouldn't have twisted these numbers. You shouldn't have lied to that customer. You should have told your wife about that. You should have been honest with your kids about this. I told you to give this. I told you to share and sacrifice this. If that check engine light's on, don't ignore it. Because as we see, the consequences can be pretty dire. In Amos 3.7, the, the verse we read, God doesn't do anything. Amos 3.7, as he first warns us, tells us, speaks to us through the prophets. Let's pray. God, we know that you're a good, good father. On this Father's Day, we're grateful for fathers. And because you're a good, good father, you warn us. You give us a warning. If we depart from you and your ways, if we listen to the voice of the culture, the voice of the world, more than the voice of your word, God, there are consequences, often dire consequences, often consequences that even we cry out to you and ask you to forgive us, you will forgive us. You remove the guilt of sin. But we will not be removed from the consequences of that sin. So God, I pray for everyone under the sound of my voice, young and old, new believer, mature believer, that if a check engine light is on in their lives, in their marriage, in their parenting, in their work, in their bedroom, in their finances, they're experiencing pain emotionally, relationally, even physically. God, if they're experiencing you to be distant and cold. God, they're experiencing that gnawing feeling that even though everything in life seems to be working out, God, I pray now that they would not ignore that check engine light. God, it's a sad case that the Israelites, they had the Ark of the Covenant, they had your presence, they had the Ebenezer, the stone of help and remembrance. They had you, but you were not enough. Jesus was not enough. And they cried out for a king like everyone around them. God, I pray for us today that you would be enough. You would satisfy us, God. God, whether the message was amazing and challenging and entertaining and gripping, whether the worship was good, whether we saw friends. God, the fact that we came to worship Jesus, to cry out to him, to be near to him, would be enough. To hear from him 
be enough. So guys, we prepare now for communion, to remember the sacrifice of Jesus, to know that we have this relationship with you that came at a high cost. God, would your spirit be working our hearts with that check engine light? Keep blinking. Would we repent, God? Would we confess, repent, and turn from it and turn back to you? We ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,